Hello and welcome to the 83rd episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Underworld Ascendant by Other Side Entertainment. Paul, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> um, I'm a game developer. I've been doing this for three decades. Uh, and I'm currently uh, running a studio called Other Side Entertainment, where we're rebooting the classic Underworld franchise with the latest Underworld Ascendant. So I'm going back to, to when we, we've had a vast variety of developers on this show. We're very proud and happy to say we've had everyone from graduates who are just fresh out of the university and made their first game all very excited to people like yourself who've been around for a very long time. And... Um, Grizzled and uh, yeah, lots of scars to show for it. Indeed, and one of the things I find is I love talking about this to, especially American developers. And I always ask this question: I mean, you, you, what did you start on Apple II, or may I ask? I I love going back this far. Is that where you made your start? Was it? Oh, you know, even further back than that. Uh, Probably even further back than that. When I was a kid, I would make games up and play them with my friends. You know, board games, paper games, that kind of thing. Right. And in college, the first computer games I worked on were on a mainframe system, Deck System 20. Right. And it was a, 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 multi-ta- a, a, a multi-user system, so we actually, the first games I worked on were multiplayer games. Okay. Text graphics. So these the MUDs, that sort of stuff, or like multi-user dungeons, I seem to remember. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I, yeah. For, for instance, there, there's a game, there was a game called Zork, a classic text adventure game. Yeah. And that was developed at MIT on a DEC System 20. I, I was at uh, Wesleyan University, but we knew the uh, the admin at MIT computer uh, uh, department. So we got a copy of Zork. And one of the things we did is we we, re, we dug into it and we changed it into a different kind of a game, like a pirate adventure. Um, so we were playing around. I was playing around with games and, uh, you know, computer games in college. Uh, but I got my commercial start uh, on the Apple II, and it, I happened to on a lark buy an Apple II and uh, saw that there were some cool games for it, like uh, Wizardry and I think it was Ultima Three at the time, mm-hmm. and I uh, started playing those games and, and said to myself, I, maybe I'll try doing one of these. So is this in the early 80s or throughout most of the 80s you were doing this? Um, this was really, I, I really started to dive in probably about 1984. Okay. And just as an aside, I'd always like to ask, you know, were you aware of what was going on in Europe at the time with regards to 8-bit computers? Were, did you hear or inklings or anything, or did you know what was going on over there? I, I wish I had did know more, probably not that much. I mean, there were some games from Europe that would go across the pond to yeah. uh, the States, yeah. Um, and, and a few years you know, later in the 80s, more so, uh, Chris Roberts was somebody I worked with at Origin. Right. And, uh, you know, I know he, he got his uh, start and did a, a bunch of uh, pretty pretty cool games when he was in the in the UK. Yeah. It's just find it fascinating that the two regions evolved, you know, it started off pretty much the same, same machines, and then suddenly it just splintered off. Uh, it's great because the two regions have their own legacy. 
as regards to their origins of develop, game development, we had our ZX Spectrums and our Amstrads and our BBCs and our you know plethora of 8-bit computers that just exploded, yeah. none of which were compatible with each other, of course. <laughs> um, but 84 is a very important year because that's when, 1980, that's when uh, Elite came out, of course. Which is what the important classic. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's just I find it 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 sort of lasted until we reached I don't know PlayStation era time when things reconverged, but up until then it was completely divergent. We didn't even have the NES. We sort of dived onto the Sega Master System and all sorts of things. Um, Quite quite interesting. So you 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 made your commercial sort of start making well looking at making RPGs um, that were similar to or in competition with um, Wizardry, etc. What, what were you working on then in the 80s? Prior to Actually, I didn't, yeah, I didn't start doing role-playing games. Um, right. I, the first uh, a few games I worked on were um, space-themed games. I did a game, um, Deep Space, that I did for Surtex Software. I was a big fan of the Wizardry series, and I reached out to them, the... the, the Wizardry folks for tech software, and uh, that was my first commercial uh, deal project. Was was working with uh, uh, those folks and, and doing a 3D space game on the Apple II, and it was a very early 3D game with with you know full 3D graphics. Um, and I was fascinated by you know 3D and 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 physics and trying to do a simulation. Okay. Uh, I also did a little bit of work on Chuck Yeager's Flight Trainer. Uh, a good friend of mine, Ned Lerner, that was his project, um, and that was a you know that was a, a, a at the time a cutting edge uh, flight simulator again 3D, um, and uh, then I started working with Origin uh, a couple years later, probably about 1986, and uh, I did a game Space Rogue, another space themed game. This one started to have some uh, role-playing, light role-playing elements in it, in that you could play either a space pirate or space trader or a bounty hunter going after uh, pirates and such. And uh, 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 a little bit like a a later game freelancer, but it really encouraged you to sort of, you know, pick whatever role you like. There was no right or wrong. Uh, It had space combat. It was all 3D. Um, and it had a storyline, um, and, and that was the first project. That was the project where I met Warren because he was uh, he did some work at the end of that project. He helped do some some writing that began began a long partnership with Warren Spector. Uh, but those are the games I was working. On. I, I helped out on some other games at Origin. I was uh, I was always an independent developer. I was never you know an employee of Origin, but they were up where I I've always lived in the Boston area, and they they were in. Uh, New Hampshire, just north of Boston, for a number of years, and so I'd drive up there and I'd spend time in the offices, and so I ended up doing some work on uh, Ultima uh, Five. I did some, uh, I did AI coding for uh, Ogre, which is based on the Steve Jackson board game. Steve, which was re-released recently, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, and so you know I helped out on some other projects. I learned a lot. I mean, it was it was. I, I probably got more out of it than Origin got out of me, uh, <laughs> in that I got to work closely with you know Richard Garriott, you know, Lord British, and and Chris Roberts, and um, some just uh, and Warren uh, Spector, so some super talented folks, mm. and we all learned from each other. You know, we we were pushing each other, and 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 it was very kind of experimental. We try things out, 
you know, when I uh, after I finished Space Rogue, Chris uh, Chris Roberts spent you know several days intensively playing through it, and not long after he came up with the concept of Wing Commander. So I, I think I had some influence <laughs> going in that direction. But you know, we all influenced each other. It was very fertile. Um, but then in uh, in the late eighties, uh, about eighty nine. Uh, Origin had, was moving, uh, moved to Austin, Texas, you know, 2,000 miles away. And I thought about moving down, but uh, ended up wanting to stay in the Boston area. And that really was the impetus to start uh, what became Looking Glass, because I needed a, you know, I had been doing games in the earlier 80s just by myself. I'd do all the coding and art and audio and design just as, a, as an individual. And you could still kind of get away with that, doing that in the in the in the eighty in yes, the eighties. Yeah. But by by the late eighties, you really needed a team. I mean, my art skills are pretty primitive, so I needed to work with artists and so forth. And so, without having origin, you know, uh, uh, there, I really needed to start a studio, which was Blue Sky uh, Productions, which turned into uh, Looking Glass two years later. Right, and that then uh, many, many things flourished from that, and one of which, of course, was uh, Ultimate Underworld. Or am I wrong about that? I Ultimate mean, Underworld was our first game. We started yeah, that in the spring of 1990. It was right. our first project at the gate, and we had a, a very small team. It was only five of us uh, for most of that project. And that's, and that's the first year, what we were working a little over a year. So looking back at that now, it seems to have read the Kickstarter details of, of the uh, old Underworld Ascendant. Um, it's quite interesting to note that you cite various games of the time that certainly inspired its creation. I think one of my personal favourites from the ST was uh, Dungeon Master, and uh, uh, a terrific game that that was. But you took that concept of like a tile-based movement, but said, okay, you can do that, but how about if we just made it completely fluid? Uh, that's how I view uh, Underworld. Was that right to think that? Yeah, I think it's a couple of... You know, there was a number of games that certainly influenced, you know, our, our, the, the, the concept for Underworld. Dungeon Master was, was clearly one of them. Uh, I thought it was a brilliant game. Yes. Uh, you know, looked beautiful, fun gameplay. Um, and, and if I recall, it came out in '87, '88. I mean, it was pretty early. It was for that style of game. But it was it was fake 3D. Uh, you weren't actually working walking through a 3D environment, and, and that was common then. Wizardry did the same thing, uh, though the graphics were just line drawing. Or Bard's Tale uh, was another example. The Bard's Tale games, uh, and. Uh, I had been doing some experimenting with texture mapping. I, I, I went to to the MIT uh, library and and was reading, you know, Evans and Sutherland and some other uh, graphics uh, researchers, academics had been doing texture mapping on uh, high end graphic workstations. And in looking at the algorithms, I was like, well, you know, that might work on a Apple. I don't know. And I and I tried out. I think it was actually like 89, I tried it out, texture mapping on an Apple 2GS, which was sort of a, a souped-up Apple, as fast as the Apple's ever got. Um, and I, I got a single texture to render at about two frames a second. <laughs> so <laughs> Whoa! It was, it, was, uh, it was not, the performance was not sufficient. 
But um, a year later, when I started playing with the PC, you know, IBM PC, um, I think it was a 386 um, class at that time, it had just just barely enough horsepower to do uh, fully you know, texture-mapped uh, 3D uh, environment, the kind on the world shows. It's very simplistic by today's standards, but it is tr- all true 3D. Um, and uh, uh, b- better programmers than I took took the, the rough algorithm I had and, and optimized it. And um, uh, so there, so there was an element of yes, trying to take what would have been fake 3D in years before and then apply this new kind of technology, this 3D texture mapped, and uh, uh, to create a fluid. 3D environment and one where you can move fluidly in it, look around, look up and down. So it's a full six degree of freedom environment, plus all the physics of that. It wasn't just the visuals. We physically modeled the environment so that things had, you know, surfaces you could bounce off of or you could throw things and they'd have, you know, the arc of gravity would, you know, if you threw a rock. So we created a whole physics simulation. And that came from my working on, you know, uh, uh, simulation games like flight, uh, flight simulator games. So flight simulators were actually a pretty big influence, uh, even though it's a very different genre. And then the other inf- last influence is the early classic role-playing games. I, I played, you know, every Ultima up through then and worked on a couple uh, and love those kinds of games as well as Wizardry and, you know, the Gold Box SSI games. Yeah. So, and I played a lot of pen and uh, paper D&D that had been an earlier influence. Okay. And so... Trying to combine all of those, the, the sort of the simulation elements, the the 3D immersive texture mapping, uh, the role playing, um, those all kind of got thrown into a, 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 into a big basket and jumbled about, and, and Underworld came out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic stuff. I mean, it's interesting that speaking personally, at that time, 1990, um, I was deeply ensconced in the realm of the Amiga. Uh, I'm European. What are you going to sure. say? So you meet your demo scene and stuff like that. And it's interesting that you, you obviously had to go to the PC to do what you did. I mean, I don't think the Amiga was capable of doing what you're asking of it. Did you even but attempt? It, 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 might, it might have been, but it's not. it wasn't a platform that got enough traction in the States. No. That the publishers we were working on, um, it, it was never a lead platform for the, the publishers we worked with. It was it was maybe we'll port to the Amiga if, if it's a hit game. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Underworld never was ported to the Amiga because I think it would have worked. Yeah, it probably would have done. I mean, they did. Re- they did manage to port some. I mean, Wing Commander managed to arrive on the Amiga. I seem to remember. Yeah. I yeah. Actually, that was the first time I played a Wing Commander. It wasn't on the PC, so I didn't. This will make you laugh, but I didn't actually adopt the PC until it had a decent operating system. <laughs> I understand. More, I understand. <laughs> I went, nope, I'm not because I had the Amiga for so long, and I really loved the OS of it, and I went. Look, I want a decent OS. Wait and win, you know, Windows. I see Windows ninety five. Okay, that seems to be ish. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, also, Doom kind of pushed me over the edge as well. <laughs> sure. So, but uh, you know, also the fact that uh, Wing Commander came on about eleven discs or something, maybe more on the PC. There's only four on the Amiga. I'm not sure what that said <laughs> about what was going on there. Maybe you, as a programmer, could understand because of all the. Lovely custom. Uh, as I recall, so, the, the Amiga disc just had a lot more storage for each disc. I think yeah. the, the floppy disks that were being used for the 
And the, and the smaller, earlier format discs for the IBM were pretty small. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, it certainly started something, because I believe many people cite it as one of the earliest first-person games ever made. It's not the earliest, of course. I think if you go back further, the most there's, there's one that was released in 1981 in the UK called 3D Monster Maze. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I have. Um, yeah. When I was when I was in college, there was a Plato uh, gaming system out of the um, 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 I think University of Illinois, and yeah. they had some first-person games, and that would have been in the early '80s. Yeah. So the germs of an idea came into being, but kind of you know the fluid movement. It really was you're running running around, and you had no no weapons. You just had you in a maze and a T Rex. And you had to sense where the T Rex was, and if you, then it sort of told you where it was, and you just have to just run to the exit uh, <laughs> and uh, to find the exit. But you know, sure. it's terrifying stuff. Look it up on the internet; it's fascinating. It's all in, it's all in black and white. There's no sound, which made it even more terrifying. Uh, <laughs> um, Minimalistic yeah. is is good for 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 scary. For horror and scary, yeah. And there was a little bit of that. I would say a little bit of that, a lot of that in, in Underworld. So um, I'm going to move on now because I think we you know we we could go on further career and uh, but I think if we in the theme of the show we're going to talk about Underworld Ascendant. I know you worked on many other things. I mean, you can talk about them now if you like. But if it's right, if we, if we move on to the next question. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then in Looking Glass, you know, we went on to work on System Shock and Thief and Flight Unlimited, <laughs> some other games. So we we took what we learned on Underworld and then extended that to other games and other genres. Uh, but it, it all, there was a great similar, similarity between the Looking Glass games. There's sort of a, a, a DNA that, that runs through all the games. Yes, and all people understand there's two Underworld games. Or there's going to be three. Hurrah! But <laughs> yeah, no, we did Underworld and then Underworld, uh, Ultimate Underworld 2 yes. came less than a year later. There was a rapid-fire sequel Mm. It came out in uh, 1993. So, uh, but then, uh, then it went fallow for 20 years. Mm. <laughs> but finally, we're yeah. coming back with Underworld Ascended. Brilliant. Um, in a very different uh, gaming environment, we'll talk about it later on the show. Um, so, I'm going to ask you as a creator, uh, someone who's been creating games for all his life, by the sounds of things, um, what do you, what influences you? Do you think? What, what do you get from the the, the world around you that, that keeps you going, keeps feeding that machine in your head? Uh, well, as I said, I, I, I played games as, uh, uh, and designed games as young as I can remember. Right. I just enjoyed playing games and, and, and particularly entertaining my friends if I came up with a fun game. Um, and so that, that hasn't gone away. I think that's sort of underlying why, why I did doing this as a career. Um, I, I, I'm an avid reader and I, you know, I read Lord of the Rings when I was quite young, and and tons of science fiction, all the all the classics, the H.G. Wells and Jules Verne's up through modern fantasy. Yeah, um, and so that's been a big influence. All the reading, all the fantasy authors and science fiction authors, um, and some of the films that have come out of that, whether that's you know Blade Runner, you know, which is a you know the kind of film that that inform helps inform when you're doing games like System Shock. Um, uh, so I, you know, I just love that whole fantasy science fiction, you know, the, the literature and the films and, and all that, and 
so I, I you know I think games of all sorts um, in science fiction and fantasy are, are, are you know have been the biggest influences on doing this and the tech is just fascinating and, and, and one of the reasons I'm still doing this after three decades is because the tech keeps on changing you know it's not you, you, there's always something new to learn you know you go through 8-bit and then it goes 16-bit and isn't 16-bit amazing and then 32-bit and you know, now we have VR and uh, you know all kinds of stuff and it just you know every year brings something new and as a designer that's just a lot of fun because you just have new tools to, to work with I'm sure, I'm sure it is. It's one, uh, to, I'm sure no one will turn around to you and go, oh, come on, Paul, why don't you just grow up? Sorry? What did you say? <laughs> don't, don't say that to me. <laughs> and I, I have a common thing, like, interaction, like, why are you still playing these games? Should you grown out of them? Like, so what do you want me to do? Sit there and write crosswords all day? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Yeah. Okay, fine. No thanks. You know, I, I do encounter that sometimes. People, uh, you sort of, they're kind of projecting on you because they're, they want to do what you're doing, but for some reason they don't. And uh, it's an interesting psychological thing. There. Well, I think, you know, what I've heard about people who are, you know, uh, in the arts, whether they're painters or uh, uh, sculptors or, or, or writers of, of novels uh, or, or making games, is that I just feel like I, I don't have any choice. It's just what I have. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I certainly didn't get it into you know I didn't get an industry to, uh, with with dreams of you know making money or anything like that. That wasn't a consideration. It was just I got to do this. Yes, uh, and, uh, and I think that's true. If if you talk to most game developers who've been doing this for a while, that's that's probably they'd say something similar. I've I've um, been to a talk once that was at the expo, and they actually sat down and they said, you know, uh, there's a cura- people curating various exhibitions of video games, and one of them said, well, the type of games we have, they're not necessarily commercially viable at all. Um, they're actually just games because they're games. People made them because they wanted to, not to actually earn a crust. They're just like, oh, I made this really, like they had a game where, there's two puppets hitting each other, and, <laughs> and the sensor, there are sensors in each bat, and depending on how hit hard they hit, was rip, rip, uh, the, there's a feedback back into a little computer, which then told them how many points they hit. Just, it was ridiculous. It was absurd. Very fun, but absurd. And um, you know, just, like you said, just feeding that. It's, that's the ultimate of that, isn't it? Like I'm not doing this for a living. I'm just because I want to. Do it, and, that's right, and and I think similarly, you you, you I think most of the you know, successful game developers out there would would probably say that they they at core are doing the games that that they're passionate about and 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 what feels right to them. Um, it's it's not looking at some market analytics and saying oh I ought to do this feature you know do this genre. Um, and 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 I, and I suspect the same is true for again other artists and, and other commercial fields, you know, movie directors or, or book authors that, you know, they're they're working on projects that, that genuinely, you know, they, they find you know passionate and motivating. Um, and and I think sometimes we we have games and Ultima Underworld is an example, uh, or, or Thief is another example where we didn't necessarily have expectations that it was going to be a you know a big commercial success. Uh, and we hoped it would, but that we didn't go into it saying, "Oh yeah, this is going to be a slam dunk." I mean, we really didn't know. Uh, Thief is a prime example. We we were breaking a, a lot of what, what were then considered rules of uh, 
you know, 3D uh, run-around shooter-type games. Yeah. Uh, and that you didn't go, you know, try to mow down everything in your gun sights. And, and doing so usually meant you would lose. Um, you know, having to be stealthy and having to hold back from uh, engagements, you know, uh, combat uh, was something a lot of people questioned before that game came out of how would this ever work? Um, but we were just excited about what we felt would, could be the potential. We thought it was worth trying. Um, and, and I think it's easy in hindsight when you have a hit to say, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, that was going to be a hit. <laughs> but I think the, the honest answer for most people when they're creating a new franchise or a new kind of gameplay is they don't really know. Um, and they're just doing it because it's it's a really interesting problem and, and, and they're really excited to try to tackle it. Yeah, and I, I loved Thief. Uh, I loved um, fooling the guards. That was the, the thrill of fooling the guards because they were so well-coded. Uh, I'm not saying it because you're here, but their, 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 their movements and uh, their <laughs> trying to predict where they were going, what they were looking for. When when they almost caught you and they just like, oh, no, no, he's not here, no. I just loved that. It was just so good. You know, the, the, mere, the mere thrill of hiding from someone and you made a game out of it. It's just so good. Well, on, on Thief, you know, the, uh, the, that, that was a challenging project. It was about three years of development. Mm. And for the first two years of development, we didn't really have the AIs and the stealth working well. No. Um, we, we tried and, and, and it was a lot of experimentation because we were, we were covering new ground. No one had really tried this kind of deep stealth gameplay, uh, certainly in a first-person game. Um, and it wasn't fun. You know, with the AIs not you know not really working, the stealth not really working, it just wasn't particularly fun. And, and we had our vision what we wanted to get to, but if you played the build in that first year and a half, you'd scratch your head and say, you know, is there a game here? And then one day, you know, after some further refinements of the AI and the stealth, I remember we had a build, and it all came together. We we just hit that tipping point where it suddenly. Uh, worked well enough to create that suspension of disbelief that yes. that that guard you know really was having a hard time noticing you and you could you could if you were quiet and stayed in the shadows sneak right past him and it was it was wonderful um, but it's hard if you go for a year and a half without without being there yet and just on the faith that you hope you'll get there <laughs> yeah it's I'm sure it was a lot of like this is not possible and a lot of Publisher pressure, maybe. I'm not sure if there was at the time. It was like, going, what are you doing? This is not going to work. Let him shoot everything. No, no, no. They don't want to do that. This is just, that's not the point. But it's not working. You can't get, you know, you can't. It's too complex. I suppose you're asking too much. You thought you were asking too much of the computer to think, well, what if he goes there and does this? And all these ors, if, and, and maybes, all these logic statements that probably went on for billions of code. Well, I think that was that was part of what worked at Looking Glass. You know, we were in an independent studio, at least for most of our uh, most of our years, and uh, and and we we embraced you know innovation and taking risks. Yeah. And that means you're going to hit dead ends, and that means you're going to throw stuff away that doesn't work. Yeah. And you have to be okay with that because only by making mistakes are you going to learn and and you know. Uh, in- incrementally get to what you need to get to. I mean, as long as your vision is good, as long as you, the place you're trying to get to is fertile, you know, uh, for something really interesting, then, you know, it, 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 it's more often than not rewarding to, to take the twists and turns to get there. 
Uh, but that's hard if you're not independent or you've got a publisher who's, you know, says we got to ship this soon. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have that room to, to experiment and make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's harder in some ways these days with the, the you know, games have gotten, you know, AAA games that might have, you know, I don't know, $50 million budget, development budget. Um, the, the challenge there is that you, you might have a lot of money and resources to work with, but because the stakes are so high, you know, somebody's got $50 million they're betting. Uh, it tends to make everyone conservative because they yeah. don't want to. Who wants to experiment and take risks with fifty million dollars, you know, at stake? And so you tend to see more modern games, particularly the AAA games, uh, tend to be less innovative and tend to be more the same. You know, what what worked last year and the year before? We know this works, so let's polish this a little bit and, and improve the graphics a little bit from last year, but. Uh, you know, innovation is hard to do when when there is someone with deep pockets uh, who who you know is putting a lot to risk. Yeah, in that environment is very difficult to to change things. I mean, some teams are able to do that. It's not that innovation doesn't happen on those teams. It's just relatively few and far between. Speaking of relatively few and far between, that's a segue, by the way. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not anymore because I've just called it one, but never mind. Um, who do you most admire in an industry and why? Oh, I, you know, I, I never like signaling anyone out. I'll, I'll go through some of the folks <laughs> I really admire. Okay. So, you know, Richard Garriott is, a, is an early person in the industry and, and uh, somebody I, you know, uh, met earlier in my career and worked pretty closely with. And he taught me uh, an enormous amount. Uh, uh, you know, he he was someone, uh, and you know, still is. Uh, but but I saw him taking you know risks and creative risks towards a vision. You know, the the earlier uh, Ultimas, uh, particularly uh, I'd say Ultima three, four, and five uh, and six. You know, that series. Uh, one of the things Richard really wanted to do with those games is is put the player in a moral dilemma, where there wasn't a clear right or wrong choice. Um, and probably your choice meant somebody in the game, some NPC, would be harmed. You know, they they, they would, they, you know, you'd make somebody quite sad. Uh, but you had to make a hard choice, and 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 then see, and then let the player make their choice. And again, the game wouldn't say, "Oh, that's the wrong choice." And then you define your your sense of character in, as a role playing game by the kind of moral choices that you made. And there are very few game developers doing that at that era, and Richard was one, and, and arguably at the lead on that, and he just, he had his very strong vision, and it's not an easy thing to pull off, and it's not even clear that it's commercially a smart thing to do, but but that was his vision, and he chased, you know, he, he, he continued to pursue that vision, and, and it worked, and so that, that sort of courage to, to have a vision and, and, and just try to play it out, um, you know, was really a lesson for me. Uh, Warren is another one. Uh, I'm going to pick some origin folks just because they, they were earlier in my career. You tend to get influenced by people earlier in your career uh, by nature. You know, Warren was another one who, you know, Warren, uh, uh, as I said, started working. He was he was a producer at Origin and, and, and worked at the tail end of my first game there. Uh, uh, and then he was our producer on uh, 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 Ultima Underworld. 
later he joined us at, at Looking Glass and was uh, uh, ran our Austin studio for for a spell. Uh, I'm going to continue to work. He's a he's a uh, creative advisor to uh, other side and, and helping out on what we're doing today. Um, and, and and Warren, you know, besides being a wonderful person, is just you know he has these amazing insights into uh, kind of what makes games tick, um, and particularly from a you know player experience, you know, kind of the moment-to-moment decisions that a player is doing, and how the player connects with the narrative arc of the story. You know, Warren has a film background and a story background, and he's always all of his games seem to try to weave in. You know, how do I tell narrative and stories in a way that, that really fits the interactive media and, and where player choice uh, really matters? Um, and he's just, you know, games like Deus Ex were, were just amazing games. Uh, and, and so he's been a big influence. Um, so, you know, th- there's two. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I, I could go on. You could. I mean, I always give a little feedback. You can say a company. I've had some developers give like broad, sweeping answers, which is lovely too, because they say, oh, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And uh, that's cool. But thanks very much for that one. I've got one more question about you, and then we go on to the second half where we do talk about Underworld Ascendant. But this is my favourite question, because it gives me an insight into what makes you tick as a gamer yourself, because you do play games yourself as well as make them. So what are you playing right now? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, uh, a, a occupational ha- hazard of being a developer means you don't have as much time as you would like to actually play games, current games. So uh, uh, my, my current game playing has uh, uh, been far, far less than I would like. Mm. Um, so, you know, I've, I've poked around with uh, some of the more recent games, uh, uh, Fallout 4. I've had only moments to pe- peek at it. Uh, I did play a bunch of Fallout Shelter, which I thought was a lot of fun. Yes. On, on mobile. Um, uh, you know, there's just, a, you know, unfortunately, I can't, you know, in terms of super current, I, I just don't, have not had a lot of time to be playing. That's fine. Does, doesn't matter. But going back a little bit further, yeah. you know, I, I played through games like Bioshock Infinite, which I had great fun with. I don't, I don't play very few games where I play from start to end. My Typically what I do is I'll play a game for, maybe an hour and you know fair or not uh you know i, I tend to feel like i I've, I've learned most of what i can from a game giving it an hour um and uh, i just don't have the motivation to stick through and finish games all that often but bioshock Infinite is an example of a game that i felt you know compelled to to, to finish it through uh and had a lot of fun with uh dishonored was another one uh, that uh, I really enjoyed, and, and, it, and it is to some degree an homage to some of the Looking Glass games. It, it has a feel in some of the mechanics that uh, you know we did in some of the Looking Glass games. So it, it, it felt you know familiar territory, and in fact, some of the people worked on that worked uh, worked with the Looking Glass. So there was some direct connections as well. Um, so those are a couple of examples. Right. No, um, Bethesda stuff too. Obviously, a bit of a affection towards them. Um, but they do produce some like, extraordinary games and uh, yeah uh, I, Bioshock Infinite I thought was an extraordinary game uh, it's an understatement it's, it, there's no it, it's so the world was so so rich that's what I what, that's what I took away from that game I mean yes there's an opening sequence that's incredibly violent and without context you don't understand why it was so violent 
but um, yes, it's. Uh, I, I have to agree. With you. I couldn't stop playing. I had to see this to the end because it kept on asking. I kept asking questions, more questions. I wasn't getting many answers. I did get some at the end, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I have to. Uh, well, Ken Levine is someone who who worked uh, worked at Looking Glass and yeah. uh, early in his career and. Uh, you know, was 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 a, a great talent at Looking Glass, and then he you know he blossomed with uh, you know he and the team irrational doing Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite, uh, and again a lot of Looking Glass influences with those titles. To me, what was interesting about Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite is that they really pushed the the narrative arc forward, and and really got you. I mean, you're obviously given a character there. It's not a role playing game. But but you have a real sense of you're trying to explore what this character is and, and other characters and what their motivations are, um, in, 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 a, in, in a in a very deep way. It makes it pretty satisfying as, as the story kind of fleshes itself out when as you play through. And, and of course the environments are wonderful and you know some of the gameplay is just just a blast. So yeah, very very real. You know, one of the better games I've played in recent years. Yes, I agree. So that's it for the first half. Ray, too tough. And then we move on to the second half of the show where we talk about Underworld Essence. So, Paul, tell us about Underworld Ascendant. What is it? Well, as I said, it, it, it's it's the next uh, next version in the Underworld franchise, which uh, the original two games, Ultima Underworld and Ultima Underworld 2, came out in 1992 and 1993. Uh, and then the game was fallow for 20 years. Uh, it, it went deep into the Electronic Arts uh, vaults, and, and, and it, it essentially took 20 years to... to Pull them out again, and we're able to take the franchise forward as an independent studio. Uh, we don't have the Ultima, uh, you know, name, uh, but other than that, it's a full sequel. Uh, we have all the other. We we're using lots of story elements and monsters and some of the places and settings from the original games, and uh, we're in some ways carrying this, this story forward as well. Um, so it is an it is an Ultima. Uh, I mean, sorry, it is an Underworld um, uh, for sure. It's grounded in that, and we want to make sure that uh, players who are fans of the uh, Underworld games and, and and over a million copies of the two Underworlds have sold during the 1990s. So it was pretty successful, actually. Uh, it was it was more than a cult hit? Uh, it was one of the most successful games that Looking Glass did over its ten years. Um, and uh, so we've got a lot of fans, even though it's an old game today, we still have a lot of fans who remember it. And some have played it more recently. And we want to make sure that, it, you know, that the game is, is true to sort of the, the, the core of what made that game tick. 
uh, not not just for the fans, but for ourselves, because we, st- we still love that, that franchise, and there's a lot great about it. We had always planned to do an Underworld 3. It just took a little longer to get that <laughs> in play. Um, but obviously, 20 years has passed. The technology, you know, the platforms we have to work on are hugely more powerful than what we would have designed Ultima uh, Underworld 3 for if that had been done in the 90s. Um, and the... You know the the game industry's moved forward, and so the kinds of gameplay that that people get excited about um, uh, that's evolved as well, and and things like digital distribution and um, you know all these things sort of moved forward, evolved the kind of gameplay that you might do today compared to 20 years ago. Uh, and you know last you know there's been games that have come out over the intervening years, games like Dishonored and Bioshock Infinite. And, Lots more that that have you know we've played and, and you know kind of influenced what we're thinking about in terms of you know learn, we we all learn from each other. I mean that's been true since the day I got in the industry. So we see pieces of oh that game is doing this really cool. Maybe if we take that and then we you know recontext it in what we're our system and what we're trying to do that would work for us. So there's always this borrowing and bits and learning from each other. So with all that combined. Underworld Ascended is a is a is a evolution from the original Underworld as well. So there's some things we're doing pretty differently, and we're gonna we're doing in in the Looking Glass tradition. You know, we're experimenting and and trying to innovate and taking some risks uh, because that's that's the nature of the franchise as well is, is to try to innovate. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, nicely done, excellent, and um, as you said, it's definitely. A game that's from 20 years ago, and we'll talk a bit, a little bit later on about how that's impacted its development. Um, but, but it's built from a game that was released 20 years ago, and I believe you can still you can buy it now from Good Old Games, can't you, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, Good Old Games has it, uh, you know, as a uh, DOS box that you can just install. Yeah, so you can actually just run it on modern machines, amazingly. Um, although I must say, I do have a what they call a period PC that allows me to run DOS games. <laughs> um, it actually has a uh, 600 kilobytes free memory. I don't ask how I've managed to do that, but uh, I managed to run anything on this thing. Anyway, my second question is about um, it's more specific about the game now. And now we understand what it is. It's a first-person dungeon delve game, as as was the originals. Tell us about the Improvise Engine. Is it Improv Engine um, system? That, uh, yeah, uh, Improvisation Engine. Yeah, sorry. TM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we were trying to come up with a, a, a catch-all for what the technologies and gameplay would do. Uh, we, we in, in the early days of, of Looking Glass, we used the term act-react, uh, which was a little more technical and didn't necessarily convey to uh, players what, what it really meant. Um, and we're going further. You know, the act-react was sort of a, a, a subset of what we're doing today. So we push it further. So the improvisation engine, really, what it is is it's it's a set of uh, of technologies, uh, 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 simulation technologies, and um, uh, gameplay technologies, and, and physics technologies that collectively all kind of feed on each other to with a, with a really the goal to give the player this like really big toolkit of uh, actions and decisions they can make to solve any challenge. So if you're in a 
in, in the, you know, the underworld takes place in this Stygian abyss, this massive dungeon that uh, uh, we're going back to the original underworld would take, take place in, in, in the volcano, uh, an ancient volcano. Um, so you're in this massive dungeon. So if you're in, say, in a particular room in this dungeon and you have an encounter with a nasty monster, uh, what we want to do is give the player lots of ways to deal with that monster, lots of ways to deal with that challenge. And so nothing's scripted. Um, and you might, the player might uh, uh, solve that in, 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 in a, a plethora of ways, some of which we as designers didn't even think of. And that's sort of our litmus test that we've done our job right. And the player comes up with something and say, huh, we would have never thought of that. But yeah, it works. Um, and so just to give an example, let's say you're, you're facing, we, we had our playable prototype that we were showing the other month, you're facing the Shadow Beast, which is a creature from the original Underworld. Um, and it's a pretty nasty monster. And if you're you know, not a high-level character with you know, fighting prowess, it's pretty tough to take toe-to-toe just you know, with a sword. Um, I mean, you could, um, but you know, you're, you're, you're at high risk of, of getting beat that way, unless you're a pretty strong fighter. Um, and so, what you know, what are your options? That was sort of what we were trying to show with that. And uh, you could have a character who's developed, say, some stealth skills, and they use those stealth skills to just evade the shadow beast and get past them, and so just avoid combat, much like the thief games. And that can be a smart way to do it. Of course, you won't get the the rewards for for dispatching the shadow beast. So it's not it's not as if that's necessarily uh, 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 a perfect solution, if you will. But it's one of the ways you could do it. And let's say you had some you know good magic skills. Uh, so maybe you had a fireball or, or a kind of spell, or maybe you had an entanglement spell, or maybe you had a spell to charm a giant spider that's also in this room, and then you set the giant spider to attack the shadow beast and dispatch it that way. Um, uh, and there's just you know those are some examples, but but our goal is to try to provide the player with many many different uh, choices to solve any challenge or encounter, with no clear right or wrong, um, and just sort of let the player use their imagination, and then feel very clever about you know wow I I solved it in a way that I didn't you know this was tough challenge and if I just did the straightforward thing I'd probably fail but I did this clever other thing and I and I got past um, and so making the player feel clever rewarding the player for sort of thinking through uh, clever solutions is is a key goal and and that's where the improvisation comes into place so sort of you on on the fly and under the pressure of the threat of say a monster in front of you you know, quick wits and, and using the tools around you, you'll be rewarded. Yeah, yeah. that's what I saw from the videos online, the, the, the thief. People listening should check out that video. It's fantastic. It does show all the different things you, she could have possibly have done, and she just went that brute. And uh, the end, um, the payoff is quite funny towards the end. I found it funny anyway. Um, I think the, uh, the character does too. Um, but I won't spoil it. It's, it's a five-minute video. It's fantastic stuff. It's a great walkthrough. So my next question concerns, and you've already hinted at this many times, but I want to talk about it. I want to delve a little bit deeper into this, uh, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> is um, the games, the previous games, it's been over 
over 20 years 20 years since the last games came out and um, so a lot has happened in the RPG genre since they came out with the arrival of the likes of Skyrim and Divinity for example the two titles that immediately spring to mind what has remained from the original games of Underworld that appear in Ascendant and what's you found taken from current generation stuff that you've merged the two and has there been any clashes there or has it been relatively smooth um so what what were the kinds of things that we're retaining from the original games are some of the back some of the backstory some of the characters particularly some of the, the more interesting characters that you encountered in the original games the NPCs um uh some of the uh some of the vibe this is one of the things we, we, we when we were doing the early concepting we, we spent a bunch of time talking among our, ourselves about what really made Underworld tick and Underworld feel different from a lot of other games. And one of them is it was sort of an early survival horror game in a way because uh you were thrown into this deep dark dungeon where everything was trying to kill you. Not really knowing anything, you were very, you were, you were, you were, you know, so almost naked, and you know, you could pick up like a, you know, a, a bone as a weapon. <laughs> you know, you, you're just trying to survive in the early days. Mm. Uh, I know today survival games are, are sort of their own sub, you know, genre now. Yes, but uh, you know, we were kind of doing early bits of that, and you could you could make things, you could craft things, like you could make popcorn, and uh, you could you could make a fishing rod, and then go fish and catch fish for food in the original underworld. So. It had that, those sort of elements, but but sort of the the central thing there is that you were in a really dangerous, dark, nasty place, the Stygian Abyss, and it was kind of scary. And and being first person and being kind of dark and, and often claustrophobic. I mean, there were larger spaces, but a lot of the spaces were more tight, twisty corridors and smaller rooms. And there was a lot of I come around a corridor and oh, there's a big monster in front of me. You know, there's a shadow beast or a lurker there. Um, and now what do I do? So that that kind of sense uh, we're going to retain in uh, in the current one, uh, along with you know some of the narrative threads and characters in place. Uh, we're retaining some elements of the magic system. We use a runic magic in the original games, where you'd collect runes and then combine them to sort of spell out symbolically using uh, Norse uh, runes. Uh, the spells and uh, to cast magic and and we're, we're taking that forward. We're, we're adding some some fun stuff to that. But but people who, who played the original magic system from Underworld will recognize it. Feel familiar. Um, the for obviously still first person. Uh, you know, still very much the uh, immediate immersive. You know, deep, deep gameplay. Um, I just turned my phone off. Um, so, you know, a number of elements were taken in the original. In terms of, you know, elements from more modern games, um, well, part of it is just the technologies move so much. So the, the what you can do in terms of visuals and audio is just leaps and bounds. And so naturally, you know, that that's all, you know, just, just hugely forward from where it was in the original games. Um, the... Uh, some of the things we're, we're, we're taking, I mean, we're, stealth is going to be um, a, a fairly important element uh, to the games and 
when the underworlds were done, nobody was doing stealth. It didn't exist. Um, obviously, we did a lot of we, we pioneered a lot of stealth with uh, Thief, but there's been more recent games that have continued to push stealth forward on, on various fronts. Uh, so we learned from those. Um, some of the combat mechanics will go further, and if you look at a Dishonored or some of the other games that have done some nice combat mechanics, you know we learn stuff from that. Um, uh, some of the visual storytelling elements that you see in, a, say, a Bioshock Infinite, um, we learned from that. And, and uh, uh, you know, we've got a few, couple people who worked on Bioshock Infinite here. Uh, Joe, Joe Fielder, who's our design director, who did the narrative design for much of Bioshock Infinite. Uh, most of the dialogue that you hear in that game he wrote. Um, and... Uh, Art direction. You know, one of the things about the uh, original Underworld is we, we really didn't have what I would call an art director. You know, we, we had artists. Uh, we, we put bitmaps together. The, the game doesn't have a really co- any cohesive sense of art direction. And, and back then, that wasn't so much of an issue because they're so limited in graphics. Art direction was not so important in that context. Today, it, it's, you know, art direction is much more important. And, you know, we just now to brought Nate Wells uh, on board as our art director, and uh, he was the art director on Bioshock Infinite, as well as Last of Us and uh, Rise of Tomb Raider most recently. So he's a, he's a veteran in, in figuring out how to get a just a very evocative visuals to convey what the game's all about. So if we want to you know, create the Stygian Abyss, the sense of looming and foreboding and danger you know, how do you translate that in terms of art direction? That's, again, something we didn't really need to worry about 20 years ago. <laughs> but now, now it's important to figure that out. Definitely. It's just, I love to hear the two merging of, like, 20 years ago, things are so different. It's amazing I mean, in, in an industry that changes so vastly in 20 years. Many other industries don't change so quickly, so vastly. Yeah. But video games, oh, wow, certainly. Um, uh, so... To, to have the merge to the, the current technologies and philosophies as well, you were saying, you know, or approach to design is so much more evolved than it was back then, and yet you still manage to retain some of the kernels of what existed back then and merge it into the new. It's great. Well, I, and I think it, w- one way we, we to get back to what what are we taking from the original games? Mm. I mean, Warren Spector had had said. Uh, uh, about the underworlds, that in terms of gameplay, there if you did nothing with the gameplay at all, but just modernize the graphics and the audio, you'd be ahead in terms of gameplay against most other games today. Um, now maybe you just, <laughs> but but I think there's I think there's some truth to that. That the the depth of role playing and immersive gameplay in the underworlds was years ahead yeah. of anything back then. And in some ways, it's on par with what you see in, in role-playing games today. Um, the the if you had asked me 20 years ago where you know 3D immersive games of this sort would be, I, I would have thought they'd be much further along in terms of gameplay. Um, and again, the visuals are wonderful, um, you know, audio is wonderful, but in terms of the actual gameplay, um, it hasn't. The, the amount of innovation has been less than I would have. And so uh, we're actually, you know, uh, um, you, you, you know, the, the starting point of the underworld is pretty far along. 
Uh, and we have definitely work to do, and we're doing doing a bunch of stuff. But I think that's the gameplay, and that, that the things like the uh, aspects such as the improvisation engine. That's really where we shine. You know, we're we're an indie studio. We're not making a fifty million dollar, you know, triple A super, you know, bazillion polygons with you know, pulling out all the stops on the visuals that we possibly can, because that's just that's a different beast. Um, but where we can, uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, a trump in in some ways what anyone's done, anyone else is doing, is is pushing forward this kind of deep immersion. Uh, 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 deep ability for the player to make a lot of different choices and, and feel very clever about their choices. I, I look at a lot of AAA games like you know, uh, Last of Us, uh, which Nate was the art director on, and it's a great game. Or Bioshock Infinite, a great game. But those are two examples of games where it's very linear. Right? There's not a lot. Of, the, the gameplay does keeps you pretty much on rails. Uh, you know. I, again, I love playing Bioshock Infinite, but there were a few times where I tried to go off the track and explore something, and invariably it would put up, you know, essentially, you know, you can't go that way. Just yeah. get back on the track. Um, it's, and, it's, it's games like Skyrim and Grand Theft Auto and, you know... Yeah, so I think, exactly. So games in, in their RPG genre, Skyrim is certainly an example of a game that, that's... Or, or, or Dishonored, or games that are more... Uh, more certainly more open world. Uh, Skyrim is uh, hugely open world, or, or the, the Fallout, for example. Yes, yes. Um, and so I think open world, which we were doing early days, is now you know that's been embraced, and that's great to see. But where you don't see so much progress is on player choice, and really giving the player a lot of options. Um, you know, the activities that you do in a lot of these games is still usually fairly narrow to find and there's often you know you have to complete this mission and there's just a uh, you know right wrong um, and you know even a Deus Ex you know Deus Ex is a brilliant game but it's really you know at core it's designed around you have three different ways to solve it mm-hmm. those three different ways are more or less scripted uh, effectively and you can choose which of the three ways, but it's already set up for you. Yeah. And so, you know, there's still this immersive space, this, this sort of deeply interactive gameplay where the, the player is really the author of the experience. That, that's one lens that we look at it. We want the player to be able to author the kind of experience they have, such as if you play Underworld Ascendant and I play it, we might have very different experiences. We may describe a game and we're saying, do we play the same game? <laughs> you know? You went a totally different direction. And that's just not, you don't really see that no. being done in games today. It may be there's a good reason why not. It may be that you know, there's not so many people who will appreciate it. But again, that goes back to our vision. You know, we have a vision. We want to take the game in a particular direction. We don't know if that's a direction that has a huge audience of people who want to play it that way. But uh, it's, it's interesting. And we think, it's, we, we think there's going to be enough players who really enjoy it. Uh, and maybe a whole lot of players really enjoy that that kind of experience. It's certainly something that games uniquely do well. You know, if you're making a movie, movies do narrative and visuals extremely well. It's a great media to do that. Reproducing that in a game, sure, you can do it. It's not even necessarily a 
nothing wrong with it, but it's not taking advantage of what's unique and powerful about what computers can do and video game systems can do. So, you know, I'm interested in exploring what this media can do, and, and so that sort of deep interaction is, is a place we can go further with. My next question concerns um, the characters you can play. There's three archetypes. There's mage, warrior, and a rogue, from what I can gather from the, the two I've read about um, Underworld Ascendant. And apparently later on in the game, you can actually create a hybrid class or have assets of all three different types. And so that's quite an open-ended way. So, And also you talked earlier on about the improvisation engine. How... You must be finding it quite difficult to balance the game to prevent it A from becoming too difficult or B way way too easy. I mean, what, how have you overcome that? I mean, just can you talk through that a little bit. Yeah, um, uh, so two parts answer to that. Yeah. Uh, the the character. So we we will start you with a, if you will, in the old D and D paper sense, a pre-rolled, uh, uh, pre-built uh, choice of a rogue, which is a our name for a thief kind of character, yeah. a fighter, or a mage. But that's just starting. That That's in D&D like a level one character. And so you'll just have a couple of skills. pack. You'll have a very small skill package based on which choice you have. But from there, you can, you can completely uh, revamp that character as it develops. So you might start as a, ma- as a mage on day one, but by halfway through the game you're a mighty warrior, you happen to have a couple of low-level spells to get started with. But you're, you're basically a, an uber-warrior. Um, you've, you've long forgotten your mage roots. So we don't constrain you in any way there. We just don't... What we want to do is make sure players can get in the game right away. We don't want to have a sequence of rolling up a character and making all these decisions. Often decisions that are hard to make as a player because you don't know what the game is yet. So I, I don't want to choose and get locked into being a mage if I find out that Magic in this game is not something I'm so excited with. And, you know, hours later, I wish I was really a fighter. So we don't lock you into anything. We do give you a starting package of skills. And then as you progress, you get to pick new skills from the full palette between mage, rogue, and fighting skills. Um, The only real constraint is that as you go up in a particular skill tree, a set of skills, like, say, fighting skills, you you will have to make choices again that emphasis on player choice oh to get to that next high level of fighting skill it means i'm going to have to you know basically the equivalent of allocating a lot towards that which means i'm not going to be able to develop my magic skills nearly as much so you you never can master everything There, there, there won't be an ability to be a master rogue fighter and uh 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 mage so it it you could be a jack-of-all-trades, in which case you'll be good at everything, or you'll be pretty good at everything, and that's fine. If you want to be pretty good at everything, you can do that. But you can't be great at everything. So that's that's the essential trade-off. So if you're a player who, you know, I, I really want to be a, a very capable fighter, a really mighty fighter, but I also want to have some stealth skills. You know, I like that. I want a decent stealth skill. That's fine. You could develop that character. Um, so any mix of those, any mix that, that makes sense for you, uh, it's open-ended. Okay, great. In terms of the balance, so the part yes. two, yes, it is It is hard to balance, and, and that's certainly a challenge. We face this challenge going back to the original Underworlds and on games like Thief and System Shock, those games as well. 
because they had similar kind of open-ended, a lot of player choice. We're going deeper with it. Um, I, I think evidence shows that we did that pretty well in those games. You know, those games, it's not that they were perfectly balanced by no means, but, uh, you know, certainly System Shock and System Shock 2 are examples of games where there are certain skills that not many people chose to take and, and, and don't have, you know, as good applicability. But partly that's the answer. If the game is giving you lots and lots of choices and there's no clear right or wrong, it's not like, oh, you should do X, and if you don't, you're kind of stupid, then balance is not the most important thing. This isn't a strategy game where it's really important to make sure that every skill exactly matches and balances out against every other skill. We have more room to, to uh, you know, more wiggle room on that kind of stuff. And it doesn't really bother players. You know, the, the benefit of having all these choices certainly outweighs needing to, you know, feel like every skill is exactly the same value as every other skill. Um, and, you know, I am I, sure that some players will gravitate to certain skills or abilities that are, you know, tend to be more useful, tend to make things more easy for them. But the other aspect here is that we're going to reward players for unorthodox solutions and, and, for, and for doing things that are actually harder to pull off well. You know, the, the clever, you know, offbeat challenging solution. We're going to find ways to reward players for doing that. And so that helps balance it, too, so that, yeah, it might be easier if you're a strong fighter to just muscle your way through. It's a pretty safe choice. But, hey, try this other thing out. Maybe it's risky, but it's rewarding and it's different because no one else has tried it. Uh, that's what I got from the original game, certainly, and uh, uh, other similar games that reward you for going off the beaten track and thinking... Um, outside the, uh, the, the the brackets of what you believe the game played constrains you in um, with games like this that don't they don't want you to be constrained they want you to experiment and not punish you for for doing so exactly I mean it's it, it, it's not, it's not going to be uh, you know like a witcher it's not going to be a harsh game or dark souls that really beats you up left and right and 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 I I appreciate that kind of gameplay I mean dark souls like dark souls games are, are, are pretty cool games Nothing wrong with that. But that's not this. That's not Underworld Ascendant. You know, this is not a brutal game. You know it is dangerous, Stygian Abyss. It's not a game that's going to be crushing you left and right. Uh, so there is some forgiveness there. And again, we want to reward you for being inventive, uh, clever. Um, you know, that, that's, that's what we're rewarding you at some level. So a final question. I know, all good things come to an end, but this is the last one. And it's full of going full circle, actually, because you spoke about this earlier on in your, your, your earlier uh, part of your career, even before you started making commercial games. I want to ask you this question. Um, there's been a return, a resurgence, if you will, of pen and paper RPGs in recent years, um, taken some by surprise, but there it is, it's happened. Have any of the advancements in this realm, if you're aware of them, Influence the development of Underworld Ascendant. Um, yes, um, yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, a bunch of the team are, are avid board gamers and role-playing gamers, and, and including myself. Um, and so we certainly play a lot of these games. And I think from the board game and role-playing, it's not necessarily a direct. Oh, let's take this exact mechanic and just put it in a in a in, a, in this you know, interactive game, because it often doesn't translate directly well. That that's usually doesn't work so well. 
but you know, you you just get this library in your in your in your brain of you know playing these games and getting a sense of how they do things. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but you know, what, what, one thing is I think that, 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 that there's more and more games, you know, whether they're deck building games, that let you build up a, a seat of uh, a palette of characters or skills or you know the equivalent of base building where you're building your little town and you have a lot of choices and it feels like yours you know it's like well i made my choice i built this little town out of the cards that i had or the deck that i had or the set of characters or set of powers you know magic the gathering and so forth and i think that's become both very popular but it's just it's just inherently satisfying because you feel like you're crafting your own kind of approach to the game as a player and that ownership of that, I think, is potent. And so we have more of those kind of elements woven into Underworld than uh, Underworld Ascendant than we had in years past. Yeah, I, 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 a good example of that would be uh, Agricola. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Agricola. Yes, sure. sure. Oh, okay, so there's a there's a game that if you told someone, well, I actually told someone about this game recently, is it? Oh, you're a medieval farmer. What? Right. How could that be exciting? Be yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it is. It's a fun game, and uh, you know, a lot of friends play that game. And it's uh, to, to me, it's heartening because those kinds of games are the games I, I really like. And um, you know, twenty years ago, only a very only us hardcore board gamers would play those games. Yeah. And today, a lot of people play those games. They become you know surprisingly popular, and, and uh, uh, you know, teenagers and, and people in their twenties are playing those games as much as anybody. Yeah, um, I'm a member of a board game group over here in London, and we have almost 7,000 members now. And there's, there's an event, a board gaming event, held every day, every day uh, at, at a pub somewhere in central London. And uh, it's hugely oversubscribed. You know, people have to book weeks in advance to get a slot. It's, That's great. It's fantastic. Uh, and, you know, we never played Monopoly. I mean, the last game I played is a game called Evolution. It's beautifully, beautifully put together game. You can find it. I'll have to try that out. I haven't, I haven't played that one yet. <laughs> it's good. It's really elegant. It's just a lovely, you know, you create species and you have to earn points based on how successful that species is. It's amazing. Yeah. And it only, yeah. lasts, it only lasts about an hour, which is beautiful. It's just so good. Anyway, um, so, as I said, last question. So, uh, Underworld Ascendant, it's coming out for Windows PC and anything else, or just do this focus on Windows PC? Uh, Windows PC, Linux, um, Mac. Okay. Uh-huh. What else? Windows PC, Mac. That's, that's the big that's one. It. Those are the three. Sorry. That's, that's the three, yeah. Yeah, you're not going for the uh, consoles. Maybe, maybe, but maybe not, not, not just now. Well, it's something, it's something we, you know, we're, we're looking at, but uh, for down the line, but right now we're, we're focused on, on these platforms. So, and it's arriving sometime in 2016? Uh, we're looking at, you know, the, the end of next year. Excellent, excellent. Well, Paul, it's been fantastic having you on. Uh, I've enjoyed Thank you. Yeah, um, it's been um, really illuminating hearing about your past and your, your present and where you're going. And I do wish you the very, very best of luck with, uh, with Underworld Ascendant. I'll certainly be looking out for it when it arrives uh, late next year and then tracking it for the next 12 months or so. All right. Great, great speaking with you today. Thank you. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us 
on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up The Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer and listen to this show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Bye!